0: This is Radio Rothbard, where we take on politics and current events without illusions, compromise, or PC nonsense, the way the late Murray Rothbard would. This show features a personal and revealing interview of comic Dave Smith by Jeff Deist. It shows a side of Dave you haven't seen before, so don't miss out. And be sure to follow Radio Rothbard at mises.org slash Radio Rothbard. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash Radio Rothbard. Now... Jeff Deist, and Dave Smith. Very pleased to be joined by our guest, Dave Smith, of the Part of the Problem podcast, Legion of Skanks, Team of Comedians, etc. So Dave, how you doing, buddy? Very good. Good to be uh, talking with you. Hey, you know what? You share a pedigree with Walter Block and Bernie Sanders, all three of you born in in Brooklyn, New York. Yes, that's right. I'm uh, I'm happy to share a pedigree with one of those two people. <laughs> Well, as an aside, you know, uh, Bernie and Walter are on the track team together. Yes, I know.
1: And At high school. And yeah. Walter Block uh, was slower than Bernie Sanders. And yeah. it, almost, it yeah. almost makes you question everything you've learned from him.
0: Yeah. Well, so I don't know much. I know a little about what kind of household you grew up in. Tell us a little about, like, for instance, did you go to public schools growing up? Was your mom political? Uh, how did you develop as a child? I went to both public and private school.
1: In, uh, in Brooklyn, New York. I went to PS 107, and then I went to Berkeley Carroll uh, for middle school and high school. And so I had, I think, uh, I remember reading Rothbard, and he said that that was one of the first libertarian experiences he had in his life, and I feel the same way, uh, going to public school and then private school. I, I didn't like my private school much either, but it was much, much better than the public school. Hmm. Uh, the public school was just a disaster. Um, I actually remember, I I still have a vivid memory of my third grade teacher uh, giving the entire class all of the answers for the standardized tests that we were taking, the citywide tests at the time. She would just tell us the answers, just straight up give them to us. There were abusive teachers. They're just really horrible environment. I learned nothing while I was there. And for all of the problems that my private school had it was not nearly as bad. I feel about private school teachers the way Donald Trump feels about Mexicans coming into
0: our country. Some
1: I'm sure are good people, but they're not sending their best.
0: (laughs) I think Malice had the opposite. I think he went from private to public. Oh, really? Is that true? I didn't know that. Yes. Yes. So tell us about your home environment, only child siblings. I was a,
1: I I, gr- I have a brother and a sister, but my brother is much younger than me. He's 13 years younger than me, and he's from my mother's second marriage. So I grew up uh, with a single mother and my older sister, who's two years older than me. And we were um we were lower middle class and then moved into middle class, uh, grew up in, in Brooklyn uh, with a single mother. We moved a lot. I, I lived in probably nine or ten different apartments uh throughout my life. And we we grew up, you know, I was born in 1983 and I grew up in, in what is now old Brooklyn and what I guess is now old America. Uh I I feel like I was the last of the previous generation. I, I was the like I, I think I was the last generation where if uh you know you you would just go outside unattended. And that was just what children did. If someone threatened to beat you up and you told an adult, they would probably tell you to punch him in his nose. That was just kind of a different world with no internet and no wokeism, And just, you know, the previous pre nine 11 America
0: Uh, was your mom political. My
1: mother was a liberal. She, she was a, a, a left liberal. Um, but in the true sense of A liberal, not none of the woke stuff of today, but she, she was a Democrat and she kind of probably pretty much bought the, the democratic party line. Uh, she's, she's changed a bit in the last few years or perhaps she's stayed the same and the Democrats have changed, Uh, but, um, but yeah, she was, you know, uh, she, she was interested in politics. My mother would have, uh, you know, my mother and my stepfather would have crossfire on um, back when, you know, Pat Buchanan, uh, and I can't remember the guy on the left who was there, but that, that would always be on in the background. And Michael they were Kinsley, I think. Yes. Yes. Kinsley. That's who it was. Uh, and so she, you know, they'd have that on and she'd always read the New York times and stuff like that, but she was a pretty standard run of the mill, uh, liberal Democrat.
0: And I've heard you allude to going away at some point to college in a much smaller town. And I'm suspecting that was a culture shock for you. Oh, yeah. I went to uh, Hartwick College in Oneonta, New York. Uh,
1: Tiny little town, brutal winters. Um, Winter starts like in October and goes until April. And uh, I I just did not like it at all. It was boring. And I just didn't I I missed the city. And uh, yeah, was that that college experience was not for me. (laughs) <laughs> so all of a sudden, the only thing you could eat at midnight was maybe a Domino's pizza. Yes. I mean, I remember Domino's closed at midnight and if you didn't catch Domino's before they closed, that was it. There was nothing to eat and I, I couldn't, my, my New York City brain could not understand. I remember when I first went up there and I was like, okay, well, what else is there? And people would be like, no, there's nothing else. And I felt like, okay, well, you must be wrong. There has to be something else. Um, but they were right. There was nothing and uh it was actually the first time when i was at college the first time i ever um was confronted by wokeism. you know what's now taken over the the entire national discourse or whatever um but i remember a uh, very left wing i had a very left wing history professor who basically uh, th- he was a history professor he had nothing to do with any of this stuff but he would teach us that there were um basically no uh, differences between men and women and every difference between men and women is is just because we've been socialized to feel this way. I remember arguing with him that, that I said, so are are you suggesting that if women were raised in a different way, they could compete in the NFL with men? And he said, yes, very seriously. That yes, if we just raised our little girls differently, they could be middle linebackers in the national football league. And I, I remember thinking the whole thing was just really stupid And I didn't, none of it was interesting to me. And I didn't like living in the small town. And I just, I just wanted to get out of there, which I ultimately did.
0: So as you're going through grade school, high school, and then on into college, there were no real signs, no flashing signs that you were going to be some brilliant student or intellectual or academic type.
1: No, I hated school. I was, I was a very poor student all throughout. I hated school. Uh, I was kind of, teachers always thought of me as that kid who, um, was kind of wasted potential or something like that. Um, that I, I, you know, I was bright, but I just didn't care about school work. I always did the bare minimum to pass. Uh, I, I, my, my big concern with school was that I not get kicked off the basketball team. And I think you had to have like a C average or something like that, or they wouldn't let you play. So I always managed to just get what I needed, but I didn't care about school. It didn't interest me. I also didn't like the whole system. So I when I went to Berkeley Carroll it's it's like this very kind of wannabe elitist uh park slope private school and I just uh, I hated their whole culture. Uh, I I didn't like the, I mean, I had a few teachers who I liked very much, but for the most part, I didn't like the teachers. I I had a lot of friends. There were, there were other kids at the school that I liked a lot. Um, but they would, even back then they would do these things. Like it was, it it was probably a 92% white school if I had to guess, uh, at the time. But when you'd come in the door, there would be like pictures of all the black students who went to the school so they could brag about their diversity. And I, I immediately just saw right through all of that and, and despised it.
0: You know what though, as an aside, I bet your old school liberal mom really cared about you going to a decent school. Yes, she did. She, she very much did. Um, but my mother,
1: you know, was my mother was the the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, and this had a big, big impact on her. She always identified with the downtrodden, or you know, uh, whatever group uh, she thought was oppressed, or things like that. But she also had normal cultural values and thought things like families were very good, and she she hated, um, you know, like lewd. Um, poor values.
0: Well, I want to ask you this when you began your career in New York City, that seems to those of us outside your profession, that that's sort of the epicenter of comedy, stand up, and you've lived there a long time, you've been in Manhattan most recently with everything going on in 2020, you've at least considered leaving. I mean, doesn't isn't that awfully tough for you a New York guy both professionally and culturally? Yeah, it's it's very tough um for me.
1: I'm I'm truly heartbroken over what's happened to to New York City. And um I uh it's it's to me nothing short of a tragedy. I think New York City is an amazing city. I know a lot of uh a lot of libertarians and small government types uh think of it as as this hellhole, but I love New York City. I love the pe- uh, I love the people and I love the culture. I love the museums and the restaurants and the theater and everything. I just think it's a great place. Um, but I have a two year old daughter and I don't want to raise her around heroin addicts. Um, and, uh, I, I just don't, I would rather her be in a nice house with a a nice backyard in a good neighborhood. And so, you know, that's, uh, as much as I do, I am fond of a lot of aspects of New York city. That's it was time for me to get out.
0: Well, I've read in one interview with you and there's not very many interviews of you, by the way. um, You you know, you describe yourself as a young guy with sort of standard boilerplate left wing perspectives. And so like all good Brooklynites, you disliked George W. Bush, who's probably the first president when you were becoming really conscious of all this stuff. But maybe you disliked him for the wrong reasons. I don't know. No, I actually, George W. Bush,
1: I I disliked for the right reasons. And I was just kind of standard, a standard left-leaning guy. I mean, I, I, I didn't really know much about politics. Um, but I, you know, I probably would have, uh, gone along with like, well, obviously we should tax rich people and give some of the money to not so rich people. I mean, what are you, a bad person who wouldn't want to do that? Or, you know, we should have a higher minimum wage because yeah, don't you care about what you know, poor people who work make, you know, is not really thinking these things through, but just kind of coming to the, what seemed obvious left liberal perspective. But George W. Bush was a different story. I, I was 18, uh, on nine 11 and I it had a big effect on me. I, I, I stood on Flatbush Avenue and watched people covered in debris who had walked over the uh, the Brooklyn Bridge and come back because all the subways were shut down. So they were just kind of flooding uh, up Flatbush Avenue, and and I was really, you know, I was 18, and I kind of thought, oh man, like maybe they're gonna, you know, bring back the draft, and may- maybe we're gonna be in crazy wars. And and George W. Bush came to New York City, uh, I think a week later or so, and said. You know his famous line that i hear you washington hears you and pretty sure the people who knocked down this tower are going to hear from you and i was all in i mean i didn't know anything about the history of you know muslim united states uh conflict but i was like these these bastards picked on the wrong enemy and they're gonna pay for this and i was i was all in and then as the, the years went on and I saw that George W. Bush really didn't care about, uh, who had attacked us on nine 11. And he was using this as his excuse to go, you know, fight wars in Iraq and kind of shred our, our, uh, you know, the, the bill of rights. Um, and then when he finally said that he really didn't care about getting Osama bin Laden, it was a couple years later, some reporter asked him about, you know, well, you know, we still haven't gotten Osama bin Laden. He said, I don't really think about it that much. And I was furious. I was furious about that. Like I felt like he came to us in our moment of need and lied to us. And I I really um just I, I could just see through Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. And I guess as, as being a left liberal, it was easy to see through them, but I hated the Patriot Act. I hated the war in Iraq. I hated everything about those guys. I also hated that I thought George W. Bush was I, I thought he was unimpressive, uh kind of dumb, this elitist. Child who was just kind of gifted a silver spoon and and kind of handed the White House I I hated everything about him and all of all of my uh, Opinions that I had before I became a libertarian Those Those are the ones that (laughs) I, I probably
0: still have with me the most. I think I was pretty much right about all of that You know what I like to hear though And I think libertarians are really dopey when it comes to this is your natural Reflexive inclination to care about your city and be angry when it was attacked and to have a sense of place or home. Yeah. I think I think libertarians are really stupid and, and short-sighted on yeah, that. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's been infuriating to me over over the last
1: few months. I mean, how are you not outraged by by this stuff? And so many uh libertarians I've seen are almost like they're just dug into their preconceived bias. So they're like, well, the cops are the bad guys and the state is the bad guys. So, you know, this is somebody who's kind of upset with the state. So this group isn't so bad. And it's like, oh, how could any normal person see people just destroying cities and not think this is horrible? And for all the same reasons that we hate the state you know they're they're like lack of respect for private property or civilization or basic human decency for all of the same reasons
0: that you hate the state you should hate these mobs uh, every bit as much so after 9/11 you get into your 20s and at some point you've mentioned that you came across the or were influenced by the 2008 2008- Ron Paul presidential campaign. So talk us through that. What was your first moment perhaps when you felt your worldview changing a little bit? Well, it's
1: so it was so random. I just I happened to be at my mother's house and we were watching the Republican debate, I guess, in late 2007. And this happened to be the Ron Paul Rudy Giuliani exchange. And Mm. I was already I I already was really anti-war and i thought that the iraq war was the issue of that election that's what i cared about i assumed well george w bush is is leaving and obviously we need to get a democrat in there because then everything will be okay because at the time if you didn't know anything about politics it was kind like if you didn't know anything about political history it was kind of easy to think the democrats were the anti-war ones even though pretty much all of them had voted for the war, at least all of them in the Senate. Um, and But it, they were positioning themselves as the anti-George W. Bush, the anti-war crowd. And so I felt like I would you know, like to see one of them win. And then I just saw this exchange between this congressman I had never heard of named Ron Paul, and he made the anti-war case better than any Democrat I had ever heard. And you could just tell there was something. Uh, Ron Paul's authentic beliefs just pierced through the, the screen. You could just tell this guy really believed what he was saying. And he was only running because he really believed the things that he was saying. And I just watched him mop the floor with Rudy Giuliani. And there was something about him. And I know a lot of people were influenced by this, this moment, but there was something that I just really responded to in his courage. I mean, one of the things that people almost forget about the, the Ron Paul Giuliani moment was that the, the crowd was with Giuliani. Ron Paul had no support in that crowd and he didn't care. It meant nothing to him. Ron Paul was like, I'm going to tell the truth. And if you guys want to boo me out of the arena, that's fine. That's on you. I'm still going to tell you the truth. And then I'll go about my day, you know, like that was his energy. And, and I, I immediately was like, who the hell is that guy? how have I never heard of him? And I want to know more about him. And so I just started Googling Ron Paul and, and trying to read more about him. And then I watched every single Republican debate after that, because I just wanted to see what else this guy said. It was, it was a really interesting dynamic. Uh, those debates in, in 2007 and 2008, it was a bunch of boring shills and Ron Paul, On Stage so it would just be like boring guy boring guy boring guy really interesting guy And he always was saying and and then he started talking about free market economics And I thought it sounded kind of crazy But he was so good on the war question that I was like, okay Well, let me at least look into this just to see why he's wrong and as I was looking into it to see why he was wrong I I was
0: converted Are there any particular? books or articles you remember from that period? Well, I, uh, I read the revolution,
1: um, but that was, that, that might have been, you know, several months later. Um, what, what I started doing was I started Googling, uh, you know, and, and YouTubing all of this stuff and listening to Ron Paul's speeches. And then I found, uh, Peter Schiff and Tom Woods. And, and I started listening to what some of those guys were saying. I started reading, uh, some of their, their articles and then the economy crashed and these guys had been basically predicting it, you know, perfectly. And then I, I through Tom Woods, he kept talking about Murray Rothbard and the Mises Institute. And so then I, I forget exactly how, but I, I found Murray Rothbard and I remember that the first two pieces of Rothbard that I read were, um, anatomy of the state and war peace in the state, those two essays. And then it was just off to the races from there. Like I, uh, I almost never looked back. It was th- then I just had to consume everything Murray Rothbard had ever read. I was on mises.org every single day, just reading tons and tons of stuff. And I just, I kind of became obsessed with it.
0: It was just, it really spoke to me. And of course, Rothbard stuff is not the gentle introduc- introduction. It tends to punch you in the face. Yes.
1: Yes. But that was, for maybe it's uh, my personality type, but that's what I responded to. I, I, I loved the stuff that just punched you. I remember back then, like reading Rothbard, and there would be times where I would literally be reading it and just put it, put it down in front of me and like, look around and be like, Wow and go back to reading. And that's what I like to read stuff like that. That really slams you makes this unbelievably compelling case. And, uh, and, and I just got obsessed uh, uh, with him and, and the, the Mises Institute in general, I started reading Lou Rockwell and reading all of the guys, uh, at the Mises Institute. And, um, and yeah, it was just, it was life changing.
0: Well, I've gotten this sense from you. I don't know you well, so I more know your public persona, but. That you share, maybe it's a Brooklyn thing, that you share Rothbard's intransigence that you, uh, when it comes to moderation or compromise.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there is, uh, there's something about my personality that, that, that m- makes me respond to that type of stuff. But also because I think that it, to me, it's, um, when it comes to the subject matter that Rothbard was dealing with, it's the appropriate attitude to have. I mean, if you're, if we're talking about a mass murder campaign in Iraq, why would we approach it with anything less than that energy?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Fair enough. And so do you consider yourself primarily a Rothbardian? Is that how you describe yourself to somebody you asked about your politics, your economics? Well, if it's, I mean,
1: I may not describe myself that way. Um, to somebody who I, I wouldn't think would know what a Rothbardian is, but I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with the label. I mean, I, I think I pretty much agree with, with Rothbard on everything. I mean, I don't know if it really makes sense to ever call yourself, uh, uh, uh you know, anyone like, like to call yourself sure. a Rothbardian or a Keynesian or that because obviously you take the good from them and, and everybody's made mistakes. But if I was going to be associated with any one thinker, I'm quite comfortable with it being Murray Rothbard.
0: Well, I noticed that recently you did a show on your own podcast about so-called 90s Rothbard, which always cracks me up when I hear that. You know, some people claim that he deviated rather than evolved in his principles. And you took the time to defend his more polemical and populist articles, the kind of stuff that showed up a little later, like in the Rothbard-Rockwell report.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that particularly that article, um, which is probably in uh, at least amongst left libertarians, his most controversial article, the right wing populism, a paleo libertarian strategy. I've probably read that article a dozen times. And I think probably the first time I read it. I was like, oh, I, you know, I I don't know. This could be a a problem. Maybe he shouldn't have written this. And then every time I read it, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to it. And and most recently I read it and I'm almost like, he's just completely right. The guy is a prophet. I mean, he's right about everything. And of course, a lot of the people who criticize the article really misrepresent it or, or at best give it the least charitable reading that you could. I think if you actually go and read the article with an open mind, you'll realize that he he's not straying from Rothbardian principles at all. He's analyzing the political moment, the moment being 1991 or 92, whenever he wrote that and making some very good points. And and much of it proved to be absolutely correct. And, you know, you could say that maybe there's um. There might be aspects of it that you disagree with, but certainly the ideas in that piece, uh, thinking that, that the country was ripe for right-wing populism, thinking that libertarians best bet was, was populism. I mean, how could you even argue with that in hindsight? I mean, you know, you, you have the, uh, you have the, the Coke crane, you know, types who have been trying to get into the corridors of power and influence the government for decades. There's been zero success from that. You have the Hayekian model of trying to influence the influencers, you know, win, win the intellectuals over. There's been zero success in that. I, uh, libertarian philosophy is more toxic in a university than critical race theory is I mean, like by far more toxic. Um, so there's been zero success in any of those. And the only success that libertarians really have is the Ron Paul movement. It was a populist movement that that you know got people up out of their seats and convinced them that this whole system was screwing them over. So you'd have to at least admit, if
0: you're being honest, that Rothbard was really onto something in in the case that he was making. You know, I've heard you mention in particular the Ethics of Liberty. In fact, I think you did a podcast with with Michael Malice where you recommended that to him mm-hmm. and talk about a punch to the face. I mean, that one that's that's really the. Uh, the quintessential normative Rothbard.
1: Yes, that's, that's the one. If I, um, if I'm recommending Rothbard to people, I usually start with recommending, uh, like a few of his, his articles or essays. Like I always start with anatomy of the state and war peace in the state. Maybe that's just because they're the first two I read. And so I just project my own sensibilities onto others, but that's where I would go next. After, after you've read a few essays, that's, that's the one that I'd go to that really gives you the most compelling argument. And to me, It's also, you know, like I, have always seen my role in, in this whole movement as being, you know, like I knew we had all of these really brilliant academic types, but I felt like I could speak to regular people. And I don't think that libertarianism is something that should exclusively be for academics. Uh, I, I really think of us as we're abolitionists essentially. We, we want to abolish slavery and we believe people should be free. It's just, you know, we, we want to abolish people being slaves to the state rather than, you know, traditional chattel slavery. Um, but in the same sense that there might be some brilliant economist in, you know, 1845 who could explain to you why, um, uh, you know, Slavery is actually not as efficient uh, as, of an economic system as free men voluntarily, voluntarily interacting with each other. But any normal person could be an abolitionist. You don't have to understand economics to understand that this is wrong and should be abolished. And I feel the same way about libertarianism today. And so I, I always do. I like the works that can just speak to to regular people where they are.
0: Now, how about Hans Hermann Hoppe? He still draws a lot of ire. From folks, in many ways, he continued where Rothbard left off. What's Hoppe's influence on you? Oh, I Hoppe had a tremendous influence on me. I mean, I think that
1: Hoppe is, he is um, quite possibly the most brilliant living libertarian thinker. And I think he is, you're right that he does draw a lot of criticism, although it's almost never actually based in any of Hoppe's work or anything that he's ever said. It seems like there are a lot of provocative memes, uh, on the internet with Hoppe and people are outraged about those. Um, but I, I think Hoppe's work has been enormously valuable. If nothing else, he's really expanded on what the true implications of a private property based society are and has you the, the best, most useful thought experiments, if nothing else for how libertarians should feel about different, um, cultural issues, different, um, issues of, of, uh, you know, things like immigration, coveted societies, time preference, all of these things. And of course people can, you know, with any interesting controversial thinker, you can always find three or four things they've said throughout their career give it the least charitable interpretation possible and say oh look this horrible person stepped out of line and said something that you're not allowed to say but if you look at the body of hoppe's work i think his contributions to libertarianism are with the exceptions of maybe mises and Rothbard, almost unrivaled
0: well tell us how how much mises have you read what are some of the highlights do you you feel like you have a respectable grounding in econ um, Economics, I should say.
1: Well, let's say for for the people you hang out with, Jeff, probably not so much. But for normal people, yes, I'm doing very good. I mean, I've read um, uh, of Mises. I mean, I read Human Action, and I've read Socialism and i've read several other you know like articles and and or, or stuff that's up on on the institute's website um but i've i've read a lot more rothbard than i have mises probably a lot more hoppa than i have mises also but those guys like i've also read um you know bob murphy uh, like choice and stuff like that so i get i've gotten a lot of mises through other people um, as as well as some stuff directly from him, but I think I'm I'm fairly sound for, for let's say for a comedian, I'm very sound on economics.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, we have a sense of your worldview, of course, from your work, from your podcast, from your stand up. But I want to talk a little bit more about Dave, the you know the career man. Uh, for, from my perspective as an outsider, comedy just seems like a brutal business. I mean, has it taught you to be entrepreneurial? entrepreneurial excuse me to control your own content to have multiple income streams it seems like 20 or 30 years ago you would have simply had a manager or an agent but now not so simple yeah
1: and that really changed in the time since i started comedy so when i when i started comedy in um what was it now i guess 2003 I started comedy and it was what you got taught by the, the older, more established guys. When you came in there, it was still all the same thing. It was like, well, you need to get into all of the clubs. Then you need to get a manager or an agent, and then you can get on television. I, and that was the, the system and there was mm. no other way around it. And right around that time it's like social media started coming in and people started getting their own followings and back then like there were a few comedians on MySpace who started building up big uh followings and then one like little by little it just all changed and it became a completely different world where now you can put out your own content directly to your fans you don't have to wait for any gatekeepers to bring you in it's it's a challenging business for sure but I mean, it's, uh, you know, you're trying to tell jokes for a living, so why should it be given to you easily? And I, I think that, um, it's, I I came around at the perfect time, uh, in many ways, I, I feel very lucky. I got into comedy before wokeism overtook comedy. So I was already a little bit established once that stuff came in and I already kind of started building up my own audience before it really took over everything. And so now it's kind of like, well, look, somebody like me is never going to get a network TV deal, but who cares, who cares about that? I can build up my own audience and do what I want to do. And I, I literally get to do stand up comedy, tell jokes, rant about libertarianism, talk to the, you know, the people who I admire, like you, Jeff, like the, the, to me, the most interesting thinkers of our time. And I get to do all of this and make a really good living and support my family off of it. This is everything i want to do i don't really want to be on saturday night live or something like that i want to do what i'm doing and i'm i'm very fortunate that i i came around at a
0: time when you can do that and it's viable well it's funny you have this quote i read somewhere where the left has waged a full-scale war on comedy so if we think about it there's any line of work that ought to be spared from cancel culture surely it ought to be stand-up comedy yeah, you would you would think so. And that certainly was true when I first started
1: stand-up comedy. This stuff was nowhere it it you know, the wokeism, I guess, has been around and has been creeping throughout different parts of society for a while now, but it was not. A, a factor in stand up comedy, no one cared about it, if a joke was offensive, if you could write a really offensive joke that still made the crowd laugh, everybody respected that because that 's kind of the hardest thing to do to say something that would normally turn people off, but they 'll grant you ah you're that 's really funny, so you got us with that one but it really over the last few years, particularly I'd say like from, from about, you know, the last five years or so, it's really, um, you know, taken over and has a huge influence. There's a huge push amongst corporate, uh, you know, corporate comedy world, uh, comedy central, Netflix, all of these, these different, you know, companies to really push, um, diversity for the sake of diversity, um, it's all kind of left wing perspectives. But the problem that they're having is that conformity to wokeism does not lead to funny. It never does. And truthfully speaking, you know, if you look around the broader world of comedy, not just stand up comedy, but I mean, if you go watch an episode of The Office, You could never put this on television anymore. And this is only from, you know, seven, eight years ago or something like that. But you could never get away with putting something like that on television anymore. And so basically the left woke types have set up parameters that all of the greatest comedians could not work within. So George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, any of these guys would be considered... You know, they, they'd have to be canceled. And in fact, you know, Dave Chappelle will uh, draw all of these heat from these guys. And they're like, you know, he hasn't kept up with the times or something like that. But really, he's just still being funny. And they have a problem with that. So there's an interesting, you know, there's like this culture, but then there's also this counterculture, which I guess like I'm a part of now, where. There there are a lot of people who just want funny comedians. You know, believe it or not, there's a lot of people who just look for their comedians to make them laugh and that's what they're looking for and and those people are
0: very ripe to want to hear um anti-woke comedy. Right, just like when we say to some kinds of celebrities, you know, shut up and dribble the ball, shut up and sing. But but here's the difference, Dave. This is interesting is that unlike actors or athletes or pop stars, we, we actually want comedians to get political. That's the tradition. People like Lenny Bruce. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, being a comedian is
1: a slightly different thing. And I also, I don't know that anyone really believes that, like anyone really believes the, the shut up and dribble thing. It's not so much that even you know, we don't even want like a great basketball player to, to say something. What we hate is that they keep just saying the same thing that everyone else is saying. And it's so boring and incorrect. And it's not like I have no problem. If one of them actually had an original opinion and said something, I thought it was really interesting when Dennis Rodman was talking about North Korea. I thought it was really interesting when Kanye West was talking about Trump and criminal justice reform and all of that stuff. What I think people get sick of is someone in Hollywood or in the NBA or the NFL saying, you know what, I've got to speak up and say exactly what everyone in politics, academia, the in Hollywood, in, in the press, what they all think. I also think that. And that's what turns people off. But to your point, yeah, comedians whole job is to give you their point of view. I mean, obviously, with the goal of being funny. But that's that's a you know, comedians can't shut up and do comedy. They have to talk in order to do comedy. So it's
0: it's particularly absurd to expect that of comedians. Now you've always been on PC in your approach. Do you and you've come haven't been afraid to combine your Rothbardianism, whatever we want to call it, with your act or with your podcast. Your special Libertas has some expressly political material. Is that just something that comes naturally to you or was that ever a conscious choice? No, it really
1: it really in terms of stand up it really wasn't a conscious choice. It just started happening. I mean, I was writing, you know, I started comedy before I was a libertarian and so I had a whole act that had nothing to do with politics. Um but I I became obsessed with libertarianism. I it was like, all I wanted to do was just read more and more about, you know, uh, free markets and the history of the Liberty movement and politics in general. And so it just started creeping into my act little by little. It's what I was thinking about all the time. So I'd end up writing jokes about it. And then weirdly, like, you know, in the last five years or so, almost every comedian became political, but they all had the most boring, you know, superficial takes. Uh, not all of them, but the majority. And so it, um, it, it just kind of got to a point where it was like, oh man, that's like, I, when I put out Libertas, it was like, well, I have this whole hour of the jokes I've been making about the state of, of America and the 2016 presidential race and all of this. And it, it, then it just made sense to put that out as an hour.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And you've also done A lot of cable news you've appeared on fox and cnn and that's increased your visibility i'm sure no question about it are you ever struck though when you're on those shows by how basic and superficial things really are yeah i mean i
1: guess i've gotten used to it at this point but i i i I sure was at first um i think it's something about it's like something about the prado distribution um but the truth is that most people are unimpressive And this is true in stand-up comedy. Most comedians are unimpressive. It's true in academia. Most academics are unimpressive. And uh, cable news and journalism in general is no exception. It's a very small percentage of people who are actually impressive. I mean, there's people who can get through it. They can, they can do the job. They're, they're essentially literate in their job. They can read the teleprompter. They can do, they can host a show. Um, you know, they can graduate college. They, they can get through what they need to get through. But in terms of actually being an impressive thinker, there's very few, very, very few. And so it was amazing. It, it would always feel weird and still does that. It, it was, it's just kind of easy to be the most interesting person on a panel all you have to do is have something interesting to say and for god's sake they're only giving you like a minute 30 seconds to talk so you'd think anyone would be able to whittle it down to the most interesting thing they have to say but then it, and and it it always amazed me and and still does when you I'll be on one of these panels and someone you know they they you're maybe going to get 3 questions and have 30 seconds on each question to talk and someone will get a question and just waste just say nothing, just filler words and and basic nonsense, no real point there. And you're like, what's the point of you being here? Why do you even want to do this? Um, but it's it's shocking how many people that describes in the cable news world. It is uh cable news is dominated by
0: mediocre thinkers. Yeah, and as you put it, they all sound like a Bank of America ad. Yes, basically. Yeah. Um but you were describing earlier how the industry's changed. It's not about clubs or getting on Johnny Carson anymore. So you're Dave Smith. You're trying to make a living as a comedian, but you also are a podcaster. You also go on cable news shows. You also do other people's podcasts. You do a streaming special. Uh, you have to engage heavily with social media. You have all these different ways of getting your content out there. So, I, I mean, this sounds like a, a very entrepreneurial venture, It's sort of a one-man band.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, it was always as as you said, it was always getting on Carson. That was the big thing for uh for stand-up comedians. It was you, you get on Carson and if he likes you, you're a famous person now and that's it. Now you will be a successful stand-up comedian. And after Carson retired, it was kind of still like, well, I guess you got to get on Leno or Letterman. I mean, there's two of them now, but you got to get on one of those. And then it was kind of like, okay, well there's, there's Conan and Letterman and, and Leno and then Leno retired. And it's like, there's Fallon and these other guys. And, and then it got to a point where this kind of happened slowly. And then all of a sudden where you would have these things like comedians really want to get on Conan. And if you get on Conan, you get to go do 7 minutes of stand up comedy and a few hundred thousand people will will see you and that's nice but after a while the years go on and on and on and every week Conan's got three or four comedians on his show and now to say you did Conan doesn't really separate you from the pack and no one, re- you know, even for the the 300,000 people who saw you, you were just one comedian that they saw for seven minutes. Even if they liked you, they probably forgot about who you were by the next, you know, month they had seen seven more stand-up comedians and it just kind of didn't really move the needle at all. And then you could get on Joe Rogan's podcast where 8 million people are going to see you and they're not seeing you for seven minutes. Tell some jokes. They're seeing you for three hours go in depth on everything about you as a person and your beliefs and your this. So it, if you gain a fan from that, it's a whole different type of fan. That's someone who's like invested in you now. And then it just became a thing where it was like, oh oh yeah, going, going on a big podcast is a way bigger deal for your career Then going on one of these late night shows and and then little by little that became true for also having like a Comedy Central special or an HBO special. That really doesn't matter as much anymore as it does if you have like a relationship with your fan base. And so luckily for me, you know, I, I was able to get on those shows that turned out to really be the ones
0: that matter. Well, when you mentioned Rogan, for example, here's you reaching out to a pop audience But maybe a slightly more cerebral or thoughtful pop audience because they're investing in a podcast as opposed to just flipping through Conan one night. And so I think it was about a year ago, I interviewed the great literature professor Paul Cantor at UVA. And like you, Dave, he's a big South Park fan. Mm -hmm. And he really laments the complete takeover of pop culture by the left. So this is the opportunity for people like you... To perform quite a trick, which is to engage the engage the broader public and make them think a little bit and even get them reading or serious economics potentially
1: yeah absolutely I mean those people certainly are you know if you're talking about rogan's crowd, it's a more thoughtful, more interesting audience than your average you know uh, um television viewer for sure, but I also think there's something really interesting that happened where the the left in America for all of their flaws, and they sure have a lot uh, going all the way back to, say, like the 60s, they were at least the fun ones. I I mean, they really were. They were the ones who would produce funny comedy and funny movies. They were the ones that you'd, you know, even like uh, um, some conservative would would have to admit, well, the left-wingers are probably more fun at a party than the conservatives are. And the left uh, embraced woke scolds and gave up fun and they've kind of seeded the ground of fun. And I don't mean just fun in like some degenerate sense. I just mean fun. Like you're allowed to tell an off color joke or something like that. And so they kind of seeded that ground. And now it's interesting that a lot of the anti woke crowd are kind of picking up uh, on that stuff. And and now you're seeing more funny comedy coming out of people criticizing the, the woke scolds than anything that they can produce. So it's a real interesting dynamic where like a lot of roles have been reversed.
0: Yeah, isn't that interesting, Dave? Because I saw an article just the other day where Johnny Rotten, Johnny Lydon of the Sex Pistols, purely as performance art to provoke was wearing a maga shirt a red maga shirt (laughs) and so this was viewed as proof that he's gone and he was pro-brexit a couple years back this is proof that he's gone over to the dark side or something of course it's proof of proof of no such thing other than wearing a maga shirt is kind of the new punk rock
1: yeah well i mean i think that uh pat buchanan said that conservatives won the cold war and lost the culture war and there's there's no question about either of those things. I mean the United States of America outlasted the Soviet Union and that's a that's a pretty wonderful thing that that happened um, but the the counterculture has taken over uh, the country it's it is now counterculture to be, uh, a Christian who wants to, you know, like have a family and live by traditional values like that is, that is the most counterculture thing you could do at this point. It's, you know, not having a tattoo is more of a statement than having a sleeve of tattoos on your arm. And it's, it's strange because it just doesn't feel right like that. It, I think it doesn't feel right for either side, but there's no question right now. That, uh, you know, there's something really profoundly interesting about that. It's very different from most times in in human history. But if you were to walk down the streets of New York City with a T-shirt that said, you know, I hope cops die, that would not be provocative at all, not nearly on the level that wearing a MAGA
0: hat would be. Yeah, that's quite a quite a point. So Dave, we're almost out of time. I want to wrap up with just a couple of slightly personal questions. Sure. First, you you have always led with your anti-war position. You've always made it a hallmark of your public persona. And of course, you mentioned earlier 9-11 and W and, and the Patriot Act. So for your generation, US wars in the Middle East just seem like part of the permanent landscape, unfortunately. So how did war become such a motivating issue for you? Well, I think it all goes back to what I was saying about
1: nine 11 and, and the response to that. I mean, I suppose there's, you know, my family history. I mean, my, my grandfather was, a um, you know, was a refugee from Germany, a, a Jew who was, you know, basically born in the worst place being the worst religion you could be, you know, wrong place, wrong time type of thing. And then he enlisted in the army and fought in world war II. My stepfather fought in Vietnam, um, so I have some veterans in my family who, who, you know, know about the, the evils of war. But to me, it's also just, I, I mean, it's like, it's the worst thing in the world. It's, it's the worst thing that anyone could possibly do. I mean, if you were to, you know, if, if you were just thinking about in, in regular life, you know, if you heard some story about someone who like killed someone else's kid, uh, you'd be like, that's like the worst thing in the world. I mean, who that, Nothing's more horrible than that. Like to kill a child that like nothing is more horrible than that. And yet somehow it's just completely accepted because it's the Democrats and Republicans who are doing it. And I just, I, I don't know. It just, it drives me crazy. I mean, you hear about what's, you know, what's happened, uh, to the people of Iraq, uh, the people of Afghanistan and Yemen and Syria and Libya. It's like this huge tragedy, like a, a, a biblical level of evil And, um, and it just is accepted and it, and it drives me crazy. And, and I also think that most people, um, most people in this country don't want this anymore and, and yet it persists because there's these really evil people in this really evil connection who are making tons of money off murdering children. And I just, I, I think there's nothing more important, even with all the crazy stuff going on at home right now, there's still nothing more important. Um, than ending this.
0: Well, that dovetails with my final question, which is about fatherhood. Um, You haven't shied away from discussing publicly the impact of having your little girl. Uh, You haven't shied away from the question of abortion. You haven't shied away from talking about why families matter and why we shouldn't view uh, political liberty as some sort of pie in the sky atomized individual thing. So is this... And I don't think it, this necessarily does you any favors in the comedy scene, but it, is this something that's been growing or have you always had this perspective?
1: Well, I mean, it's, I certainly haven't always had the perspective. It's, it's something that grew and really changed. And and it changed when I met my wife, it changed when we got married and really changed when, when she got pregnant and, and had our daughter. Um, but I always just felt like you know, my heroes are, are guys like Murray Rothbard and Ron Paul, who would always tell the truth, even when it was not going to do them any favors. I mean, you think about guys like, um, Rothbard and Ron Paul. I mean, Rothbard was in, he was in with very connected, powerful people, right? Like he was the Koch brothers guy. He could have just compromised a little bit and had a much cushier life than he had. But he chose not to because he wanted to tell the truth. Ron Paul was like in with Reagan and a lot of these very powerful people. He easily could have compromised and been a star of the Republican Party. I mean, if Ron Paul had just toned down the anti-war stuff, he could have been like a made guy in that world. But he refused to because he wanted to tell the truth. And those are the guys that I really admire. And so I, I was somebody who lived a very, uh, degenerate lifestyle for a long time. I was a comedian on the road, a single guy. Um, and I, I did that for a while and then I met a really great woman and settled down and got married and had a kid. And I realized that life is so much better. And what Who would I be if I didn't share that with my audience, particularly like the younger men who listen to me, which are, are a large portion of my audience. I mean, how could I not tell them that, that, you know what, it turns out that there's something about these traditional institutions like marriage and family that are really wonderful. And, you know, then you, you kind of look around and and you realize that they're, they're really, um, disparaged in our culture today. And I don't think that's good. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's helpful that a huge percentage of children are raised in single parent households. And, and, and it certainly doesn't seem to work very well for a culture that would, um, support Liberty. So I I just, little by little, you know, as I, I came to all of these conclusions, I was like, well, I'm going to say it. And, um, you know, whether it's, it's, um, about family or God or, or being pro life. Uh, I just, you know, these are as, as I had a family, this is how my, my thinking evolved and changed. And I don't know, I'd, I'd always rather be the person who tells the truth and let the controversy come. I uh, like that. That's fine with me. I think it's, um, it's a more interesting, exciting existence. And I have, you know, now that I do have a daughter, um, that's, that's what I'd like to, to be as a role model for her. I'd, I'd like, you know, how, what type of role model would I be if I was going to avoid, uh, controversial issues because I was afraid of maybe being called a mean name or something. I mean, it's really, it's amazing. Like some of the positions that, that are controversial positions that people take that we think of as being kind of courageous, but really, you know, historically speaking, there's not that much courage involved. I mean, what's going to happen? Someone on Twitter will call you a mean name or worst case scenario, I get my YouTube channel banned or something. I mean, okay, it's not like I I really have to be worried about being shot in the public square or something. And if other people could speak up when that was really the concern, I think I should be I should have enough courage to just tell the truth.
0: Very well said, Dave. And I want to thank you for your time. It was a great conversation and it's very much appreciated. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I I enjoyed it and I I hope this comes out good. (laughs)